Hello and welcome back to What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at KFF Health News, and I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, May 18th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. We are joined today by video conference by Rachel Rubine of The Washington Post. Hi, thanks for having me. Victoria Knight of Axios. Hi, good morning. And Sandia Raman of CQ Roll Call. Hi, and good morning, everyone. Lots and lots of health news this week, so we will dive right in. We're going to start with abortion because there is so much breaking news on that front. On Wednesday, a three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans held a hearing on the Biden administration's appeal of a Texas ruling that the FDA was wrong when it approved the abortion pill Mifepristone more than 22 years ago. The panel, which was randomly chosen from an already pretty conservative slate there in the Fifth Circuit, appeared to be even more anti abortion than most of the judges on that bench. So, Sandia, you listened to this whole thing. What, if anything, did we glean from this hearing? I think we gleaned a lot of things and a lot of things I think we've predicted from the start. I think going into this, looking at the various judges' records, they have ruled on anti-abortion cases in the past in the favor of that. You take that in with a grain of salt. And from watching the arguments, it seemed like they were fairly skeptical of the challenge and and FDA's approval of Mifepristone and the subsequent regulations. You could kind of see through the questioning the kinds of things that they were asking and just pretty skeptical of just a lot of the things that were being said by DOJ and by Dango there yesterday. So, yeah, we should say that the lawyer for the FDA had one sort of round of presentation and questions. And then the lawyer from Danko, the company that makes Mifepristone, had another. And they were pretty tough on both of them. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting because when we were listening to the arguments, the DOJ lawyer and the Danko lawyer were kind of arguing a lot of the time just that there shouldn't be standing, that there isn't necessarily proof in any of the filings, that any of the doctors that are that we're suing have really had harm due to the FDA's role it was kind of down the road. I think one thing that Harrington, the, the judge for the DOJ, had said that was the FDA approving a drug does not mean that anyone has to prescribe it. It does not mean anyone has to take it. That the fact that if you were treating someone after the fact, that's a few steps down the line. And so that was kind of like a messaging thing that they were doing kind of over and over again. And then when we got to the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is representing the conservative doctors, Aaron Hawley had said, you know, they are a Affected both physically and she said emotionally, which was interesting kind of looking at that. And so it'll depend on how the judges rule. I think that there were definitely some signs throughout the arguments about this not being as unprecedented and that the FDA is not untouchable in terms of the courts weighing in on regulation. If you were just listening to it, you didn't sort of know all of this. And remember, these were two Trump appointed judges and a George W. Bush appointed judge who has a history of ruling in favor of anti-abortion efforts. But they were saying that, well, people sue the FDA all the time. You know, what's the difference here? Well, the difference here is nobody has ever sued the FDA saying that they were wrong to approve something 20 years ago. Nobody's ever tried to get a drug taken off the market that way. There's obviously lots of litigation against the FDA for the way it does some of its thing. I mean, it's often little things and then people sue each other with the FDA caught in the middle, drug makers and lots of patent suits. I was surprised that the appeals court judges took issue with what everybody I think acknowledges is the correct claim that this is unprecedented and this could open the door.
door to other challenges, to other drugs for any reason, you know, someone doesn't like them. I mean, these doctors are not saying that they've prescribed this drug and women have taken it and had bad reactions. They're saying that possibly if someone takes it and has a bad reaction, that they would have to treat that person and that that would harm their conscience. Even though, as the lawyers made it clear, no one has ever forced these doctors to take care of anyone against their conscience because there are already laws that protect against that. So it was very roundabout in a lot of ways. I think one thing that they had mentioned was that, you know, some of the cases cited in the filings were, you know, someone had taken an imported version of a Mifepristo, not the one that Danko made, and then someone else had been recommended not to take the drug, but still took the drug and then had side effects related to that. But there was another thing that kind of stuck out to me was when Judge Ho had asked, would the FDA adhere to whatever the final court decision was? And that was a little striking to me. And then the FDA had said, you know, we will. And they'd cited that they had signed an affidavit last year saying that they're going to agree to whatever the final decision is. But there were a lot of parts of the case that were just very unusual compared to the other cases that I have watched on this or, or any other part of healthcare, I think. Although in fairness to the judges, I mean, there was a lot of legal experts were saying that the FDA does have enforcement authority to, to determine what it's going to enforce and what it isn't. And Justice Alito, when he actually challenged the Supreme Court's stay of the original ruling, Justice Alito questioned about whether FDA would even follow if this drug was deemed unapproved. So that's at least been coming up as a discussion. Let's move on because it could be weeks or even months before we hear back from this panel, and we will obviously keep watching it. There's been plenty of action in the states too this week. Not that surprising because it's May and lots of state legislatures are wrapping up their sessions for the year. But we should point out that particularly North and South Carolina are acting on abortion because they've been two of the last states in the South where abortion had remained both legal and pretty much broadly available. Um, That's changing as of this week, though, isn't it? That's changing in North Carolina for sure after this week. The Republicans there have super majorities as of April, a Democrat in the House switched to the Republican Party. And what they did there is they overrode a veto from Democratic Governor Roy Cooper. And this new bill, which the main provisions go into effect July 1, will restrict abortions at 12 weeks in pregnancy. And now in South Carolina, it's still a little bit to be determined. The House passed a bill last night, which would restrict abortions after fetal cardiac activities detected roughly six weeks. Now they're sending that bill back to the Senate, which had already passed it, but they made some changes. And it's not clear whether some of the Republican female senators who oppose a near total ban will be in favor of these changes. So that one's a bit up in there. And obviously the 12 weeks in North Carolina is going to be important because there are a lot of women coming from other states now to North Carolina and clinics are getting backed up. It is a time thing for women to sort of be able to get themselves together, often get childcare, get time off from a job, have to find a hotel in most cases and go to another state. So it's going to turn out to be an issue. I think one of the provisions abortion rights groups are are pointing to theirs because this is a 12-week ban, so roughly 90% of abortions are allowed to continue. But what Democrats really pointed out was that the bill requires an in-person visit 72 hours before obtaining an abortion. So that could kind of restrict people, as you mentioned, Julie, from being able to take that time and come in 
from out of state in North Carolina, which has become a, a destination for abortions. All right. Well, I want to circle back to something that's been going on for a while in the U.S. Senate. Uh, we talked about it back in March. Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville is single-handedly holding up many military promotions to protest a Biden administration policy that allows members of the military in states with abortion bans uh, both time off and travel funds to obtain an abortion in another state. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says that this, the delayed promotions, is starting to impact the nation's readiness. Is there any resolution to this in sight? It's now been going on for, what, a month and a half? I think that, you know, we're getting somewhat closer to it, but it's it's hard to tell. I mean, we've had Mitch McConnell say that he's not supporting what Tuberville's doing with the blockade of military nominations. So that could be a little bit more pressure compared to anyone else in the caucus putting that pressure. But I think the other thing that had come up is that there had been a report this week that the administration was going to delay on deciding if space Force Command was going to move from Colorado to Alabama because of Tuberville. And so I think that if that is the case, two different pressure points, there might be movement. But it has been happening for a long time. We've had hundreds of nominees delayed. And I think the pushback has not necessarily been fully partisan. Even before we had McConnell speak out, we've had other members of Republican senators kind of say, you know, this is maybe not the best move to do this. So... I mean, given how important Republicans take the military, I get why he's doing this. It's a pressure point because it's a DOD policy. But still, it looks funny for a Republican to be holding up something that's really important to the military. Earlier this year, I think it was last month, you know, the Senate had done their procedural vote on a Tuberville resolution on something that was kind of similar when they had the VA rule that allows them to provide abortions for, you know, the Hyde exception. So rape, incest, life of the mother and, you know, that didn't pass on a procedural vote. So maybe something like that could be like a bargaining point, but it would require uh, Democrats to say, yes, we do want to vote on this. And I think that the last comments that Tuberville had even said were that, you know, until this policy is gone, I don't want to waiver. So it might not be a solution, but it could be something. Well, speaking of things that are proving difficult to resolve, let's talk about the debt ceiling talks. As of today, Thursday, there's no agreement yet, although President Biden is going to cut his overseas trip short after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned that the so-called X date, when the Treasury can no longer pay its bills, could really happen as soon as June 1st. One of the big sticking points appears to be work requirements for programs aimed at low-income Americans, which Republicans are demanding and Democrats are resisting. Uh, Welfare, now called Temporary Aid to Needy Families, already has work requirements, as does SNAP, the current name for food stamps, which leaves Medicaid, which has been a particular sticking point over the last few years. I guess we were all right back in February when Biden and the Republicans seemed to take Medicare and Social Security off the table, and we all predicted the fight would come down to Medicaid. So here we are. Yes? Yep, we're at Medicaid, but it does seem like we're really going back and forth on it. I think the sentiment at first was kind of that this would be the first thing to fall out of a potential deal between Democrats and Republicans because Democrats are really opposed to this. But I don't know. This week, President Biden made some comments that were a little confusing. It kind of made it sound like he was potentially open to the idea And then the White House kind of walked that back this week and sent some press releases out that were like, we don't want to touch Medicaid. And then I believe it was sometime yesterday on Wednesday, the president said, maybe, but nothing of consequence when talking about work requirements. And Congress is leaving today. 
So um, I think it's kind of still up in the air, but the door still seems to be open, I guess, is kind of the takeaway. There seems to be some concern from Democrats on Capitol Hill that President Biden may give too much away in trying to avoid a debt default. I mean, he's already sort of after, you know, we will not negotiate on the debt ceiling. We will not negotiate on the debt ceiling. I mean, the administration says they're negotiating on the budget, but they're negotiating on the debt ceiling, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and it, it seems that President Biden, the administration may be open to budget caps as well or cutting spending. And that was kind of something that it seemed like Democrats at first were not open to doing at all. I talked to some appropriators this week, and they're pretty upset about Democratic appropriators. They're pretty upset because they want the debt ceiling and appropriations to be a separate process and they're being tied together right now. Yeah, I think they're somewhat concerned with how the president is negotiating right now. Well, it's May 18th. There's been no talk yet of a temporary, although I assume at some point we're going to see, let's just extend this out a few days and let's extend it out a few more days and we'll extend it out a few more days. So obviously we will watch this space. So the Mifepristone case is not the only judicial news this week. In that other case out of Texas, challenging the Preventive Health Services part to the Affordable Care Act, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, lots of news out of New Orleans this week, temporarily stayed the ruling by Judge Reed O'Connor that the ACA unconstitutionally deputized the U.S. Preventive Health Services Task Force from deciding which preventive services should be provided without copays. That's a long sentence. I hope it makes sense. Reed O'Connor, of course, being the judge who tried unsuccessfully to declare the entire ACA unconstitutional in 2018. What happens now in this case? Nothing changes until it gets resolved, right? Right. Right now, I think the gist is that this means that insurers will be required to continue covering services recommended by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force without cost sharing here. And that includes PrEP for HIV, which is what's really at issue with these doctors who are suing the FDR. Actually, I guess they're suing HHS in general, saying that they don't want to be required to provide these drugs. Yeah, it does include so that that will continue. I imagine that will also find its way to the Supreme Court. Finally, in not really judicial but court-related news, Envision, the private equity-backed physician staffing firm, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy this week, presumably because the emergency room physician practices it owns can no longer send patients most surprise medical bills. ER bills were among the most common types of surprise bills when patients would specifically take their emergency to an in-network hospital, only to find that the doctors in the emergency room were all out of network. Is this one small step towards taking some of the profit motive out of healthcare? I don't see anybody like shedding a lot of tears for Envision declaring bankruptcy here. I think the the second part that the lawsuit by the ER doctors against Envision, despite them filing for bankruptcy, is going forward is, is interesting. And it seems unusual to me because they're not asking for monetary damages, but they want like a legal finding that the way that the company's business structure ownership of the staffing groups is illegal. And if like winning that would ban the practice in the state of California. And so I think if you're looking at in terms of like things that would happen over the course of time policy wise, that could could be something to interesting to kind of watch there. I just wanted to harken back real quick to like 2019 in the middle of the surprise billing debate, a vision in vision and another major doctor staffing firm spent significant sums of money to try and sway the surprise billing legislation that the House and the Senate were hashing out. Yeah, they made CNN and MSNBC very rich with their ads. <laughs> Millions of In the 90s, I covered, you know, this whole corporate practice of medicine thing, because I think it's every state has a law that says that 
corporations can't practice medicine, only licensed health professionals can practice medicine. So I've always wondered about, you know, what this lawsuit is about anyway. How are these companies actually getting away with doing this? And the answer is maybe they're not, or maybe they won't. It's going to be interesting. There's now so much profit motive and private equity in healthcare because there's a lot of money to be made that it's, I think somebody's actually starting to, you know, call on it. We will, we will definitely see how this plays out. We may not have a this week in private equity anymore. Well, let us go back to Capitol Hill where we finally have a nominee to head the National Institutes of Health, current National Cancer Institute Chief Monica Bertinoli, who is also ironically a cancer patient at the moment, although her prognosis is very good, we are told. There hasn't been a confirmed head of the NIH since Francis Collins stepped down at the end of 2021. Congress hasn't had to confirm a new head of the NIH since before the passage of the Affordable Care Act. I imagine that uh, Dr. Bertinoli is going to have to navigate some pretty choppy confirmation waters even in a Senate where Democrats are nominally in the majority, right? Yeah, I spent some time talking to health committee Republicans last week and this week, and they definitely have um, some things they want to see out of a new NIH director. They're definitely concerned about gain-of-function research, potential funding of that type of research, which is supposed to hypothetically make viruses more virulent. So several of them said, you know, we don't want to see the agency funding that kind of research or we want restrictions around that kind of research. They also are concerned with the agency um, giving a grant to an organization called EcoHealth, which was supposed to have done research in Wuhan. That was around gain-of-function type things. And I think they also, in general, are just concerned with how the NIH and the CDC responded to the COVID pandemic And they aren't happy with some of the decisions they made, what they felt like were mandate, top-down mandates. And so I do think we will see if we actually get a help confirmation hearing anytime soon. We'll see. I think it's going to be pretty contentious, possibly. And as you referenced, I kind of looked into this when I was writing my story. And there really has not been a contentious hearing in a long time. Francis Collins went through a unanimous voice vote when he was confirmed. And then the two previous NIH directors, they kind of sailed through their help confirmation hearings. And if you think about it, Francis Collins also has served under both Republican and Democratic presidents. And I, I wonder if we are coming to a point where that won't happen anymore with NIH directors. Back when I first started covering the NIH, um, it was contentious because they were talking about fetal tissue research and stem cell research and stuff that was really controversial. But then Newt Gingrich, when he became Speaker of the House, declared that, you know, he wanted the 21st century to be, you know, the century of biomedicine. And he vowed to double the funding for the NIH, which the Republicans did, I mean, with the Democrats' help. So NIH has been this sacred cow, if you will, bipartisanly for at least two decades. And now it's sort of coming back to being a little bit controversial again. In talking about the debt ceiling and possible budget cuts, I mean, NIH has usually been spared from those. But I'm guessing that if there's budget caps, NIH is going to be included in those places where we're going to cut the budget, right? Yeah, absolutely. I have been talking to a Republican House appropriator over the NIH. Uh, Robert Adderholt told me that, yes, they expect to cut in their budget because defense and NIH, labor, HHS are usually the biggest bills. And he he told me defense probably isn't getting cut very much, so we're expecting to get cut. So obviously, you know, it's a messaging bill in the House, but I think the expectation is that they're going to propose that. The Senate seemed pretty set on keeping NIH funding what it was. They had an NIH appropriations hearing recently. 
So, I mean, there's going to be some difference between those two chambers, but I think it does seem likely, especially with all the debt ceiling stuff, that cuts are possible. So that's NIH. In the meantime, now we have an opening at the CDC because Rochelle Walensky announced her resignation. Um, Have we heard any inklings about who wants to step into that very hot seat? I can point to some reporting from my colleagues at The Post, Dan Diamond and Lena H. Sun. At the time, the day that Walensky announced that she'd be stepping down June 30th, they had wrote that White House officials had, you know, been preparing for a little while for a potential departure and had begun gauging interest in the position. And some people that Dan and Lena named that the administration had approached is former New York City Health Commissioner David A. Chopsey, former North Carolina Health Secretary Mandy Cohen, and the California Health State Secretary. Um, now, you know, we, we don't know ultimately what the White House President Biden's going to do. I do think it's worth pointing out that the new CDC director won't have to be Senate confirmed. That was passed in the big sweeping government funding bill that a CDC director would need to be confirmed. But starting January 20th, 2025. So, you know, sounds like something, you know, Democrats might have been interested in doing, kind of pushing that out. So, yeah. The CDC is, you know, sort of the one big Department of Health and Human Services job that does not come up for Senate confirmation. Obviously, that is being changed, but it's not being changed yet. Um, Well, both of these confirmations, uh, mostly the NIH one at this point, comes up before the Senate Health Committee, Victoria, as you pointed out. Chairman Bernie Sanders there is having, what should we call them, some growing pains as chairman of a committee with a heavy legislative workload. What's the latest here? He's still kind of working on getting some of these bipartisan bills through, isn't he? Yeah, there is a little bit of a snafu at a recent help committee hearing where ranking member Bill Cassidy was not happy that Senator Sanders was bringing up some amendments that he wasn't aware of or they had kind of agreed to table at some point and then he brought them back up during a hearing or during a markup and so they ended up having to delay the markup itself and and do it the next week Um, and these were bipartisan bills so it was really just a process issue Um, it wasn't so much the subject of the bills and they kind of worked it out and were able to pass the bills out of the committee or most of the bills out of the committee the next week after that happened so I think that Senator Sanders is figuring out how to run the health committee What I've kind of heard is that he is somewhat more interested in labor issues than health. And so his focus is not maybe as much on health. And I think you can see that sometimes also when you talk to Senator Sanders, he's very much a big picture guy and isn't so much in the process weeds often, um, whereas Senator Cassidy loves the process. So we're noticing. (laughs) Yeah. Senator Cassidy loves the process. So um, they're an interesting duo, I think. Yeah, I mean, I was I was interested that this week, you know, Senator Sanders was among those. They're, they're reintroducing the Medicare for all bill that obviously has no future in, in the immediate future. But at the same time, community health centers are up for reauthorization this year. And that has always been a pet issue. Even when he was House member, you know, Representative Sanders, this is one of the issues that I know he cares a lot about. And now he's in charge of making sure that it gets reauthorized. So he's got sort of these competing 
big picture stuff and not smaller, but smaller than the big picture stuff that he really cares about. I'll be curious to see what he's able to do on that front. I, I assume there's no word on that yet, even though the authorization ends September 30th, right? The sense that I've gotten from talking to folks is that the community health centers is, is higher up the totem pole than some of the other issues on the must-pass list. I mean, we still have to deal with the debt ceiling and everything related there, but I think that there has been a little bit more progress done. I mean, this week, at least in the House, the Energy and Commerce had marked up their bill that had community health center funding in there. So I think there's a little bit more push on that. And because they're, you know, fairly bipartisan, I've seen interest across the board on that. So I think that they are making some progress there. It's just that there's so many other factors right now and that, that makes it pretty tricky. The ironic thing about Congress, it's summertime when everybody else sort of kicks back. That's when Congress kicks into gear. So a lot, I imagine, is going to happen in, in June and July. All right. That is this week's news. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's when we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. As always, don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links on the podcast page page at kffhealthnews.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Victoria, why don't you go first this week? Sure. My extra credit this week is called The World Health Organization Warns Against Using Artificial Sweeteners. It was published in the New York Times. Basically, the WHO said this week that artificial sweeteners aren't effective in reducing body fat and could actually increase the risk of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular diseases. They looked at the available evidence, and it's just a set of guidelines that they're issuing. It's not binding to anything. You know, every country can kind of make their own decision based on this. But I think it was an interesting marker if you look at the influx of all these artificial sweeteners over time that kind of become mainstream part of our diet. They're available in a bunch of different things that you can get at the store. And people often turn to them when they're trying to reduce sugar. And now this large body is saying, they may actually worsen your health, not help you and not even reduce fat. So I think that was just kind of interesting. The FDA did not respond to the New York Times request for the story. So I'm not sure their stance on this, but just something to note. I was interested that the WHO did that. It seemed sort of very not WHO-ish, but also interesting. Um, Sandia, why don't you go next? And so my extra credit this week is called A Year After Dobbs Leak, Democrats See Abortion Driving 2024 Voters. And it's from my colleagues, What the Health alum, Mary Ellen McIntyre and uh, Daniela Altamari. And they take a look at how Democrats are kind of seeing how abortion messaging isn't fading a year after almost the Dobbs decision are kind of doubling down on focusing on that. President Biden and Vice President Harris were both at the Emily's List Gala this week honoring Nancy Pelosi. And it also comes amid a lot of the state action we talked about earlier of a lot of abortion bans going into place. And so they have a good look at at that that you can read. Rachel. My extra comment is called Thousands Face Medicaid Whiplash in South Dakota and North Carolina by Ariel Zontz from KFF Health News. And she takes a look at the unwinding of keeping people on the Medicaid program, particularly in South Dakota and North Carolina, where the dynamic is really interesting because both states have recently passed Medicaid expansion. So officials are kind of going through the Medicaid roles beforehand. So some people who could be eligible soon may be getting kicked off only to need to reapply or 
officials need to tell them that they can reapply. So I thought it, I thought it was a really interesting look on, on how this is playing out. Yeah, it is. I mean, talk about head explodingly confusing for people. It's like, you're not eligible now, but you will be in three weeks. So just kind of sit tight and don't go to the doctor for the next couple of weeks, um, basically where they are. Well, my story is from the Washington Post, and it's called A 150-Year-Old Law Could Help Determine the Fate of U.S. Abortion Access by Dan Diamond and Ann Marimo. And it's about the Comstock Act, which we have talked about before. It's a Reconstruction-era law pushed through Congress by an anti-vice crusader, Anthony Comstock, who I learned this week was not actually a member of Congress. He was just an interested party. The law purports to ban the mail of all sorts of lewd and lascivious items, including those intended to be used for abortion. Abortion opponents are trying to resurrect the law, which has never been formally repealed. But it turns out that Comstock wasn't actually all that anti-abortion. In a newly resurrected interview that Comstock did with Harper's Weekly in 1915, he said he never intended for the law to interfere with the practice of medicine by licensed doctors, including for abortion. Quote, a reputable doctor may tell his patients in his office what's necessary, and a druggist may sell on a doctor's written prescription drugs which he would not be allowed to sell otherwise. That's how Comstock is quoted as saying. Um, wow, <laughs> just another weird twist in an already very twisty story, but let's keep track of the Comstock law going forward. All right, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ever-patient producer, Francis Ying. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm still there. I'm at Jay Rovner. Sandia? At Sandia writes. Rachel? Rachel underscore Rubine. Victoria? At Victoria Regis K. We will be back in your feed next week. Until then, be healthy. Be healthy.